Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In his new book, Last Best Hope, award-winning author and staff writer at The Atlantic, George Packer, explores the four narratives that now dominate American life and describe or divides free America, which imagines a nation of separate individuals and serves the interests of corporations and the wealthy, smart America, the world of view of Silicon Valley, and the professional elite, real America, the white Christian nationalism of the heartland, and just America, which sees citizens as members of identity groups that inflict or suffer oppression. Packer says that none of these narratives can sustain a democracy. But to point to a more hopeful way forward, he looks for a common American identity and finds it in the passion for equality, the hidden code that Americans of diverse persuasions have held for centuries. And he argues that today we're challenged again to fight for equality and renew what Alexis de Tocqueville called The Art of Self-Government. George Packer's previous books include The Unwinding, An Inner History of the New America, winner of the National Book Award, Assassin's Gate, America in Iraq, and Our Man, Richard Holbrook, and The End of the American Century. That one was winner of the Hitchens Prize in the Los Angeles Times Book Prize for Biography. He's also author of two novels and a play and the editor of a two-volume edition of the Essays of George Orwell. George Packer, welcome to the program. It's good to be with you. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, this is near the end of the book, but it, it sure resonated. Uh, you say that two days uh, after, uh, two mornings after the assault on the Capitol, you woke up with vertigo, <laughs> and you describe what you're experiencing, <laughs> and you go on to say it, it all made perfect sense. Of course, for you, is an actual medical condition, but it does seem an apt metaphor. Yeah, I, I woke up uh, sort of unable to get my balance and looked downstairs, and it seemed like a, a drop to the death. Uh, and for, for really a few days, um, the world was uh, spinning. It was not the, the solid world that uh, we, we get used to. And it occurred to me that this is what, you know, nine months of a pandemic and political turmoil and a violent assault on the Constitution will do to you. Uh, it felt as if I had kind of fallen into the, the dark hole of the self by, by being cut off from my, my fellow uh, human beings for such a long time. And I, it, it also occurred to me that maybe it's going to be not so easy to come back from this because we have atomized ourselves. We've become so cut off that we no longer know how to talk to one another, and, and I think that's actually a, a real problem for us. You do say, you write, that the virus gave us this one gift. It interrupted us. What do you mean there? You know, life is just a conti continuous stream that, that pushes you forward and, and gives you very little time to just stop and look at yourself and others and think. And for those of us lucky enough not to have to keep going to work and loading boxes in a warehouse or scanning items at a supermarket. For those of us who could stop and sit for a while last year, this was a chance to look hard at our life. And um, as Americans, we had a lot to look at because so much has gone wrong. And for me, it was a chance to think hard about what has gone wrong and and why and and what the roots of it are and how we might get out of this. So I actually perversely sort of welcomed 
the um, the isolation, the separation that the pandemic imposed on me. I got to do some reading that I hadn't uh, had time to do and, and some looking at American history and some ideas. And all of that was a bit like having a mirror held up to your face. And you don't like what you see in it, but you do have to account for it and, and try to understand it. You you live, I understand, in a, a kind of a rural area. I don't know if you live on a farm, or but uh, you have... Uh, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we spent the pandemic, um, my family and I, in a rural area in New York State. Um, and so we had the good luck of fresh air and uh, country roads um, and, and trails for our dog to run on. Um, and yeah, so we live we live essentially among uh, farmers, and that is a it, it's a it's a community that I don't know well, um, and that I you know that in a way that I look across a political divide at because biking around the, the roads where we live, um, I saw many many Trump signs last year and many Biden signs. It was one of those rare communities in America where you actually had a mix of political views right cheek by jowl. Um, And I I found that quite interesting. It's an unusual thing for us to see in this country, people actually living together with diametrically opposed politics. And you're right that you you got along well with your neighbors, right? Quite collegial. Oh, I like them tremendously, and and they are helpful to us, and I hope we're good neighbors to them. But one night, uh, very near the election last year, suddenly these red signs appeared on the roadside by their farm, and I, they were unmistakable. The color of red told me that those were Trump signs. And, uh, yeah, my heart sort of stopped. And it, perhaps uh, that was naive because I, I know they're, they're Republicans and they had other Republican signs. But somehow for me, Trump was a bridge too far. I mean, I at that point, October 2020, I regarded Trump as the president who had willfully allowed the United States to be the world's leader in COVID deaths and infections by his negligence, by his divisiveness by his incompetence, and who was threatening to refuse to abide by the results of a democratic election, which is a direct path to violence in this country if you will not accept the Constitution and the results of the of the popular will. So to see those signs was, I couldn't, I couldn't connect them to the people who put them there, because I like the people, I respect the people, but the name on the sign to me, it was uh, something I, I, w- I, I rejected and was appalled by. It wasn't just a question of partisan choice. It felt much deeper than that. And it occurred to me that, that, and that they may well see us or others that way with different views, and that's the, where we've come to in this country, where it isn't any longer a disagreement about political ideas or policy choices. It's a deep clash of values and and identities that in which each side sees the other as a threat to what they hold dear and that's an existential crisis not just a, a political logjam and it's very hard to get out of that so that the sight of those signs brought all of that home to me in a way that you know abstractly it hadn't quite sunk in but that physical 
feeling I got from the signs showed me how what what the divisions in this country really mean. And that's a change, I think, isn't it? It feels that way to me. The the whatever party you are, what what you know, whoever you support, um, I don't know. It feels different. Uh, our, our reaction to to the opposite party's signs. Well, I mean, I don't want to sentimentalize the past. There have been periods when Americans hated one another across political lines and even killed one another. Um, Political violence isn't new in this country, but it does feel as if we've reached a point, and last year felt like the depths of it, where we no longer know how to or want to um, think of each other as fellow citizens. And I think the pandemic had something to do with it because we were all stuck in rabbit holes on the internet and on social media, which uh, by algorithm, by profit motive, drives us deeper and deeper into our separate um, identities and makes us more and more hostile toward the other. So by the time of the election, it it was not uncommon to hear people say, do you think there's going to be a civil war? I don't know if you heard that in Utah, but I we, we heard it here in the Northeast. It, it, there was a sense that maybe we should get guns, maybe we should arm up. There's There may be real threats of violence that you have to be prepared for. I'd never heard that in my life, the sense that uh, an election could lead to a civil war. Yeah, I, I don't know if I heard that physically, but uh, I'm, <laughs> it, it kind of lurks there, doesn't it? It kind of lurks in the background. <laughs> it, uh, you you do say uh, it's comforting in a way, a perverse way that you know we we have gone through, you know, uh, very very divided, maybe even more divided than than now times. You you list some dates, you know, eighteen sixty one, obviously civil war, eighteen ninety three, nineteen thirty three, Great Depression, uh, nineteen sixty eight. So, but but uh, where does this fit in? Do you think how how threatening does this feel to you? It's not the Civil War. Um, I think we shouldn't allow ourselves to to become hyperbolic. It, it's a cold Civil War. It's uh, a cold sort of social conflict between two blocks of Americans who, as you know, I think we'll get into this, are further divided into separate ideas on each side of the red-blue divide. Um, and all of whom uh, leave no room for the other. That's that's the problem. There is a winner and a loser in each of these political ideas, and there just isn't a way to accommodate the other. It has to be victory or defeat. Um, so, I mean, economically, we're nowhere close to what we were in the Great Depression last year, the worst of the pandemic. We, we were still not there. Um, in terms of violence, 1968 was a much worse year than than this year or last year, um, political violence. But in terms of uh, the failure of an idea of common citizenship, I think we're we're in one of the worst places we've ever been, and we shouldn't we should not um, be naive or be um, too optimistic about how well that can go because other countries have shown us that when countries are divided and when there's a temptation toward an authoritarian solution, as Trump offered, um, it can happen very quickly. It can happen here. That's what we learned in this country. It can happen here, too. We are not exceptional in the, in the way we've always thought we were. Um, and that's 
that's part of the the mirror that was held up to us and the the warning that we have to heed because it can happen so fast and then it can take such a long time to recover if we turn to destroying democratic institutions and norms or if if there's actual violence then you can go down a very long road before you turn around so speaking of, you, you write about uh, this very nice relationship you had with your neighbors there in upstate New York, um, but kind of premised on, I don't know, kind of an unwritten agreement, let's not talk about politics, right? Let's, <laughs> because then the relationship probably gets destroyed. Uh, then you go on to write, this is very important, I'll quote you here, but this evasion of talk, it solves nothing. It's part of the collapse. Self-government is democracy in action, not just rights, laws, and institutions, but what free people do together, the habits and skills that enable us to run our own affairs. Uh, I think that's, that is very important, and we have seen the fragility of that, right? And um, how much of that do you think we've, we've lost, or, or does this wake us up? I guess that's the hopeful uh, view. Yeah what, what I'm, yeah, what I was trying to get at with that is that we 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 still have a constitution, and that's a, a very important thing. But in some ways, we've learned it's not as solid as we thought. The constitution, without a, a democratic public that can live by it and that can build on it, is a piece of paper. It can actually be shredded. And this is something Tocqueville wrote about democracy or self-government is really a set of abilities and habits that you have to learn and acquire. It is not a natural state. It's, in fact, it's quite unnatural. There's, in some ways, people would rather do anything than have to govern themselves. It's so much easier to give it to someone else, to give it to an algorithm or a, or a demagogue or the experts and let the experts do it. But we are a self-governing country, and we have lost those habits and those abilities, um, the ability to debate, to talk, to listen, to persuade, to compromise, and to cooperate. And that's that moment when I realize I can't talk to my neighbors about this or, or it will all go to hell. That's a, that, that's a terrible thing, because if we can't talk, then that's part of, part of self-government is to be able to talk across lines, um, especially among neighbors face-to-face. So um, the, 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 in addition to all the political divisions we have in this country, I think there's a common collapse of our ability to govern ourselves, uh, which it means each of us. It means each of us as citizens being able to do those things I mentioned. And we have to get those back or else we, we're we going to lose ourselves to a demagogue or an algorithm or, um, or to violence. You're talking about, uh, you know, democracy uh, large or, or small in each of us, right, in our interpersonal relationships. Uh, we'll continue that theme, but I, I want to focus specifically on January 6th just for a moment. Um, how, where does that fit in, in terms of, you know, national crises and potential crises? How serious is it? I, I recall Representative Crenshaw from Texas uh, called it pearl clutching, all this worry, you know. Uh-huh. Uh, um, uh, yeah. <laughs> no, no, where do you, where do you a, fit it in? An immense, 
Yeah, there's an immense effort by some Republicans to not just bury it, but to uh, reverse it into something um, that proves the, you know, the wickedness of Democrats, which is a remarkable <laughs> piece of rhetorical jujitsu. I think January 6th was the worst um, moment for American democracy since, in some ways, since Fort Sumter. We had 20,000 Americans sent by the president to attack the Capitol, the heart of our democracy, and overthrow the will of the people and the constitutional order that ratifies that will. And it could have been so much worse than it was. I mean, it could have been far more violent. There could have been many more deaths. It was out of control. I mean, the footage makes that very clear. Um, and just because it has, things have died down since then, and for six months we've actually had very little disturbance in the country, uh, doesn't reassure me at all, because I think the sense of um, hostility and, and alienation and the collapse of that democratic order is still there and will flare up again in the next election and the one after that, we've, because we've lost the shared reality, the facts that we all agree on before we can even begin to argue. We don't have those anymore. One side thinks it was the fairest and best election in their lifetime in the middle of a pandemic with record turnout and incredible uh, civic virtue by poll workers and, and election officials and judges. And the other side thinks it was the biggest fraud in American history and that those aren't budging. They're digging in. So January 6th, to me, was the, the big warning sign of what um, a collapse of, of our democracy would look like. And we're not we're, we're by no means out of those woods. And one reason we're not out of the woods is because one party, the Republican Party, refuses to acknowledge what happened and to investigate and to come to some common repudiation of it. So it's the, the embers are still there. If you just joined us, uh, you're listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams, our guest for the hour, is George Packer. His uh, latest book is Last Best Hope. It is out now, well worth the read. Um, uh, before we go to break, and when we come back, I want to get into the four narratives uh, that 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 you put forward. Um, just one more thing before we do that. Uh, so juxtaposed against this, what I think many agree is is a great, uh, tremendous, dangerous crisis, January 6th, and everything related. Uh, this resonated with me as well. You, you can hold these two, I guess, uh, you know, simultaneously. Um, let me just quote you, George Packer. And yet our civilization is stubbornly persistent. I have the sense that a country this big and powerful could continue the same way indefinitely without sinking or even changing its course. That worries me as much as the national suicide. America can pass through mass death, mass protests, hurricanes, wildfires, hourly scandals, heart-stopping elections, blizzard of lies, but Netflix still streams a new series every week. Parents keep paying top dollar for test prep tutors. Black Friday will be huge this year, and Big Ten football must go on. <laughs> that resonated as well. <laughs> a, 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 ship, a ship this big and commercial is going to keep on going. You say that worries you as much as national suicide. 
Right. I had this image of us as some enormous freighter whose engine room had just stopped where it cut out, which is our democracy. And yet the ship just will not change course or even come to a stop because it's the mass and momentum are so great. And in a way, would it perhaps not be better if we found that we we actually had to fix our democracy in order even to to, to be able to have the basics in this country, but we're actually such a rich country, such a powerful country that we can be insulated from that and we can forget what happens. We'll forget the pandemic. We'll forget January 6th. Um, and we'll forget the four years of Donald Trump because we're so distracted and, you know, there's always the next new thing in this country. That, in some ways, to me, that's part of the problem. Uh, we, we are so quick to move on as Americans. Well, let's take a break. We're listening to uh, George, uh, talking with George Packer, and uh, his book is Last Best Hope. It's now out and available. We'll have more following this. Support for Utah Public Radio programming comes from our members. And Cash Theater Company, presenting Monty Python's Spamalot, a new musical lovingly ripped off from the classic film comedy Monty Python and the Holy Grail, showing at the Ellen Eccles Theater August 13th through August 21st. Tickets available at cashtheater.com. Utah Public Radio is streaming music and talk programs in Spanish from Radio Bilingue. Listen 24 hours a day at upr.org. Just click on Listen Live and then press the UPR Tres button. Utah Public Radio está transmitiendo programas de música y charlas en español de Radio Bilingue. Escuche las 24 horas del día en upr.org. Simplemente haga click en Escuchar en Vivo y luego presione el botón UPR 3. The most sacred record in sports. Broken. But that record would soon be tarnished. I apologize to everybody in Major League Baseball. <sighs> How America's pastime got hooked on steroids on the next Reveal. Monday at 11 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. In his new book, Last Best Hope, Award-winning author and staff writer at the Atlantic, George Packer, explores four narratives that now dominate American life and uh, describe our divides. Uh, he says that none of these narratives can sustain democracy. We'll get into talking about that. He does find a hopeful way forward, uh, looks for a common American identity, and finds it in passion for equality that Americans of diverse uh, persuasions have held for centuries. So, George Packer, you note that, of course, uh, America is based on an idea uh, inspirational ideas been important not only to America but around the world. Uh, now, you know some of these norms have been attacked. Uh, the fragility of uh, of uh, sustaining this idea. Uh, but I want to get into um, these powerful narratives that that organize us today. Uh, I'll just quote you. You say the 1970s ended post-war bipartisan middle-class America, and with it the two relatively stable narratives of getting getting ahead and the fair shake. In their place, four rival narratives have emerged, four accounts of America's moral identity. So maybe we can jump into this. Uh, the first one you talk about is free America. Uh, t- tell us about this a bit. I, 
you know, we, we've never had a single one in this country. There's always a competition among ideas about what the country is and, and should be. But I think since the 70s, two things have happened. One is we have become a much more diverse country through immigration, through the rise of disfranchised classes to having a place at the table. We become what I call a multi-everything democracy. At the same time, we've become a much more unequal society because the end of the industrial age and the arrival of the information age has created vast differences between winners and losers. And the the working class has essentially uh, been on the, the losing end of the economic changes in the last half century. Those two things, I think, have created so much conflict and, and competition and a sense of a zero-sum game that I think they've given rise to these four narratives that I described. Free America, the first of them, is Reagan's America. It's libertarian. It's market. Uh, the market economy turned loose with government out of the way, low taxes, low regulation. It's been the orthodoxy of the Republican Party, really, for many decades now. And while it had a, Reagan gave it this very attractive um, rhetorical gloss of, of freedom and prosperity and the shining city on the hill, I think in, in practice it has led to uh, the hollowing out of many communities and um, the collect you know the kind of concentration of wealth in a few hands corporations the rich certain regions certain cities and then the impoverishment and the decay of other regions other cities other classes of Americans and so it's been a driving force for the inequality that I mentioned and then sequentially there's a kind of chronology here the next narrative I write about is smart America which I think of as Bill Clinton's America, with all the focus on education and on talent, brain power as the key to a good life. If you get an education, if you improve yourself and enter one of the information professions, essentially, uh, and if not, except that the, the old blue-collar jobs are gone, then you will have a good life. And it's sort of the, the idea of the meritocracy that we should be rewarded for our talent. But it has become an aristocracy in which... Families preserve the advantages of uh, of intelligence and of success and of the right education at the right school and pass it on to their children so that people become meritocrats at birth rather than through their own efforts. And so it led to some bitterness, and I think it's helped to give rise to the third narrative, which is real America. That's Sarah Palin's phrase. And she didn't say what exactly who she meant, but it was obvious she meant Rural and small-town America, white Christian America, the heartland, people who work with their hands, who grow food, who uh, work in factories, who fight our wars. Those are her words. And I think that became Donald Trump's ticket. He used that narrative to get elected to the White House in 2016 and to replace, in some ways, the older idea of free America, the Reagan idea of free trade and immigration and open economy uh, with this populist idea that there are real Americans and there are fake Americans, and somehow the fake Americans of the coasts and the cities, the immigrants, have been displacing the real Americans. So those those are three of the four, and I don't know if you want to ask about one of them, or should I continue to, to yeah, uh, describe the fourth narrative? Yes, go ahead to uh, describe the fourth narrative, yeah. 
Yeah, so Real America is a kind of rebellion, a populist rebellion against smart and free. And the fourth is also a rebellion. I call it just America. It is essentially a, a new generation's darker, more pessimistic view of the country, a rebellion really against the, their parents in smart America. It's a millennial and Gen Z narrative. And it says, no, we are not making progress. We are not slowly becoming the more perfect union that Barack Obama talked about. We're certainly not post-racial. In fact, we are a caste society. We have oppressed groups and oppressor groups, and they've always been in the same relation, the same hierarchy, and they are today. And to change that, we have to have radical, a radical uprooting of the way we think of America and the way we look at our history and the way we uh, come up with policies um, to, to, to change that. So it is essentially the narrative of the protests of last summer after the George Floyd murder, and it's captured the, the imagination of a lot of younger Americans who had come up in this country with unwinnable wars, financial crisis and recession, debt, Trump, and a lot, and global warming as kind of the crisis hanging over everything, and do not see uh, America the exceptional. They see, in some ways, America the corrupt, America the unjust, and um, want to really uproot a lot of our institutions, a lot of uh, the things we've understood to be the, the basis of a liberal society, and to replace them with what I think of as like a metaphysics of group identity, where we're really defined by our groups, not as individuals. Uh, and equality is, is the equality of groups. It's equity. It's not the equality of individuals. And this narrative has, um, I think, adopted a kind of intolerance and illiberalism that um, has alienated it from a lot of the rest of the country and has misjudged elections and, and the, the voters, keeps imagining that people will vote according to their group identity, when in fact people vote for all kinds of different reasons. And so the p politics of Just America have been losing because it's, I think it misjudges um, many things about the country. Um, so this is these four narratives, least four narratives replace of uh, two narratives that, that held uh, for quite some time that could roughly be aligned with Republican Democratic parties, right? Um, so is, yeah. is this just a yeah. obviously the, the, the way the country's going and now divisions within those two um, other main narratives? Um, is this just part and parcel of uh, further balkanization, polarization? divisions? I think so. I think that what the four show us is that red and blue, while being a true uh, way of seeing the country and every election proves it, are too um, simple and, and monolithic. That The red is divided into these two, uh, the, the Reagan idea of freedom, which has become the orthodoxy of really of, of corporate America, the business class, and of the established Republican Party in Washington versus real America, which is populist and coming up more from the base of the party and is 
more a working class uh, narrative and is the, the, the energy behind Donald Trump. And on the blue side, the same. There's a, a meritocratic um, and more optimistic narrative that was Clinton and Obama and the, the boomer generation sort of came to embody, which was the meritocratic smart America. And then there's the rebellion against it by their children who reject the idea of meritocracy, who, thinks it, who think it's a sham and who, who want a much more radical set of policies in order to, um, to help the disadvantage and to create more equality in the country, and that's just America. So these divisions divide the parties and divide families and divide communities and are, I think, in battles for supremacy. Um, but each of them has winners and losers, and each of them is it kind of thrives on the exclusion of other Americans. And that's why I think each of them leads to a dead end. They don't have the breadth and the, the capaciousness to, to bring us together as fellow citizens. And instead, they, they build walls. And they're part of the reason why uh, we don't trust each other, we don't know each other, and we see each other as, as um, adversaries and even enemies. In addition to all that you just listed, very true, um, you point out that we less and less have a shared reality, right? And when facts become fungible, we're lost, you write. So what do we do with that? That's uh, such a deep problem that I have no easy solution. Um, it became obvious last year when, as I mentioned, half of the country or a little more than half thought it was a fair election uh, and the other half thought it was a great grand theft when half the country thought that masking was a, a moral and civic duty and the other half thought it was a an, an intolerable uh, suppression of freedom. Um, this vaccination has followed some of the same patterns where it's not just that people disagree, but their their views drive each other into the corners, into the extremes. People become more and more dug into, if you say I need to get vaccinated, then I'm absolutely not going to get vaccinated. And regardless of what the facts say about vaccines. It's an identity. It's like a tribal identity not to have, not to be vaccinated, just as wearing a mask or not wearing a mask mark you as belonging to a certain tribe. And the facts underneath those decisions um, were, were lost. And it's partly, I think it's because of social media, which has made it possible for each of us to live in our own reality, to find our own facts, the ones that we like that make us happy and answer our worldview and ignore the rest or, or deny the rest. Um, so that without this common foundation of, okay, let's just say, yes, the election was fair. Now we can move on to which side is going to win in 2022 and how they're going to do it, what issues they're going to play to. That was the old way of conducting elections. The new way is to say, no, it was a sham and we're going to punish you for that sham. Uh, I don't see how democracy can really continue if the if if the country is so separated into different mental realities where two plus two does no longer equals four. 
for some people. I don't know how that changes because uh, the more you push on it and argue against it and shout at it, the deeper it digs itself in. By the way, you do provide some hope. You you look for a, a, a narrative that uh, I think we all subscribe to, and that's equality, right? So we'll get into that in our last segment following another break. Uh, but before we bring in the hope, um, the risk of getting even more depressed here, I want to uh, quote, uh, quote you quality, quoting Walter Lippmann, who said, Men will do almost anything but govern themselves. They don't want the responsibility. And you go on to say, think of all the ways we avoid it. You know, amusing ourselves to death, distractions, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so I guess, first of all, talk about that, if you would. Yeah, I think we don't, we don't appreciate what a hard thing we ask of ourselves in being in, uh, citizens of a democracy. We think of it as our birthright. It's always been our system. Of course, it has failed immensely to extend equal rights to different American citizens, but it's just been the given that we we govern ourselves. The the, the governing can uh, govern with the consent of the governed, but it is hard. And the proof of that is how little we really want to do it. How little responsibility people want, and instead they would rather uh, listen to uh, a leader tell them what to think, or let the social media algorithms tell them what to think, or figure out what other people in their identity group think and think that way instead of truly thinking for yourself, which is what democracy requires. It's hard work, and it's a habit that you can lose. So that's uh, it's just I wanted to kind of remind people that democracy may seem natural and in some ways easy, uh, but in fact it's unnatural and hard. How much of this is education, lack of education? Um, some people are saying, well, one solution is civics, increased civics education. Yeah, I think that education is a big part of it, and civics has dropped out of a good deal of our secondary schools. Um, and the reason is it led to polarization. I mean, it became political, and politics drove people uh, so crazy that Schools decided it wasn't worth the trouble. Let's just drop it from the curriculum. I think that's a mistake. What we need is not a return to the old-fashioned um, how a bill becomes a law. Of course, students need to learn that. But what we really need to teach is how to think, how to analyze, how to debate, not give them what to think. Students will find their own way to what they think. And we, we can't impose a national curriculum that has a, a fixed view of American history. But what we can do is teach students what it means to have to participate in democracy and, and, and even deal with people who you think are completely wrong and fools and even evil. And how do you deal with them? How do you talk to them? Uh, how do you persuade them if you can? Those are things that we don't teach and we should teach because I think as hard as it is to restore those habits of self-government that I was talking about, we have to begin, and that's one way. We've talked about the power of narratives, and George Packer just outlined the, the four narratives that uh, dominate life nowadays. 
after a break, we'll uh, get into uh, talking about equality. Um, George Packer says he, he looked for a common American identity founded in passion for equality, the hidden code that Americans of diverse popul- persuasions have held for centuries. We'll do that to follow in the break. Our guest is George Packer. The book is Last Best Hope. We'll have more following this. Did you know that one in four girls is sexually assaulted before age 18? That's an estimated 42 million women in the United States. Violence against women remains largely unreported due to the impunity, silence, stigma, and shame surrounding it. I'm Dr. Susan Matson, founding director of the Utah Women in Leadership Project. In our next episode, we'll talk about supporting survivors and ending violence against women. Listen August 2nd at utwomen.org. I'm Senator Dan McKay. I want you to join us for both sides of the aisle from KCPW here on Utah Public Radio. A weekly debate over politics, policy, and current issues where I give the truth, Shireen says something, and Natalie tries to moderate the middle. Both Sides of the Aisle attempts to help you understand the important questions facing you, the residents of the state. Don't miss the conversation. Tune in Thursday mornings, 10 o'clock, here at Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We reached our last segment with George Packer. His latest book is Last Best Hope. That's out and available now. Um, And he explores the four narratives that now dominate American life and describe our divides. Um, He does uh, point toward a more hopeful way forward. He looks for a common American identity and finds it in the passion for equality, the hidden code that Americans of diverse persuasions have held for centuries. We'll get into talking about that here in this last segment. Uh, So, George Packer, uh, first of all, you you talk about the importance of narratives, the power of narratives. Um, Of course, the idea of America, it's a a country based on an idea. Uh, First of all, you make the point that we need to be clear-eyed uh, about how I, we see ourselves. i just quote this. It struck me. This is George Packer in his book. To believe that Trump showed us who we really are is no different than from believing that Obama showed us who we really are. Narcissism is expressed in extremes of self-contempt as well as self-adoration. Both are paralyzing. Uh, so we need to be clear-eyed, uh, and I guess we'd, we're, we're both. We're all of this, right? Yeah, I was alluding to the the battle going on right now over how to teach American history and what version of American history should be taught. There was the New York Times 1619 project, which put slavery as the center of American history, as a a new framing that saw all of American history as essentially uh, the story of slavery and its consequences. And against that, Donald Trump not named an obscure commission to come up with a patriotic narrative, which was called the 1776 report, which came out just before the election. And although I think there's room for a lot of of both of the points that they make, um, I found each of them to be dissatisfying in this way. The 1619 Project leads to despair. It's a monolithic view that doesn't make room for all kinds of uh, nuances and exceptions and um, reasons to want to work on making the country better. And 1776 is complacent. It gives us no motivation to improve because we're already perfect. 
Um, in, and in a way, what I was saying was that these narratives are not just accumulations of facts. They are choices. Every narrative is a choice. How do I want to see my country? And the narrative that I come up with at the end of the book goes back to the beginning of the country and to the idea of equality, which is the first keyword in the Declaration of Independence. And Tocqueville, the French uh, writer who wrote a great book about this country, Democracy in America, saw equality as the thing that drove Americans more than anything else. Not just the ideal of it, but the desire to be on the same level with everyone, the desire to be treated as equal citizens with equal status, respect, to have nothing closed off to you because of where you're born or who you're born as. And this was a shock to someone coming from aristocratic Europe, and it's the thing he said that made Americans most distinct. And I think this passion for equality, this desire to be on the same level with everyone else, is the fundamental uh, trait that makes us Americans. And so I wanted to build on that in coming up with a better narrative than the four that we discussed earlier, and that can be one that doesn't exclude, that includes, and one that draws on our strengths and our desires rather than on our hatreds and our um, fears. Oh, so uh, I get you, you say that you're hopeful about this because you feel that most of us subscribe to this narrative, right? So it can be a rallying cry, I suppose. How do we get there? I think it's, it's a basis for any um, functioning democracy to, to have um, a sense of shared citizenship. And for Americans, there is no shared citizenship without equality. There are other countries, including other democracies, where there are groups that are basically permanently subordinate um, and accepted as such, whether it's a minority religion or race or nationality, um, and the country will continue to function. But in this country, our conflicts, including the ones today, I think come when equality is denied, because equality is the foundation. It's the fundamental um, drive in America. So if we could find a set of policies and and a, a language, a narrative that answers that desire for equality, that that begins to uh, reverse the stratification of Americans into the educated and the uneducated, the urban and the rural, the uh, forward-looking, you know, modern, uh, computer-savvy, and the uh, the blue collar who are left behind, if, if or the black and white, the different ways in which we're divided. If we could find policies that began to undo those uh, that hierarchy, I think we would be a happier country. We would be more capable of of governing ourselves, of of solving collective problems, because people would not feel locked out of citizenship the way they do now, locked out of equal status, which I think is the bottom line in America. Reaching now the end of the program, I want to um, I want to treat this here at the end. Uh, I'll quote you again. This is George Packer in his book, Last Best Hope. 
We learned how fragile it all is, talking about democracy, institutions, uh, how many things that had always seemed engraved in monumental stone or written on parchment in permanent ink turn out to depend on flimsy traditions and disposable norms and how much these depend on public opinion. Uh, But you say, I don't think we're dying. Most of us still want our democracy. Well, last year, the the one moment that gave me hope after a really dark year was the election. Um, First of all, the number of people who came out to vote, either by early voting or voting by mail or on Election Day, the largest in history, um, over, I think, 155 million people in the middle of a pandemic, when it was actually somewhat risky to vote, that showed a faith that their voice still mattered, that it had not been lost, that their chance to have a say in the running of the country was still still existed. That was, um, to me, an incredibly inspiring moment. And I have to say, the fact that the majority of them rejected a president who had poisoned us with lies, including the big lie of of uh, the election, and who had so malevolently mismanaged the pandemic that that half a million Americans had died by the election. Um, that also gave me the sense that we could that we could look to our better angels, and that we were not doomed to uh, to be just warring tribes um, who were you know locked into a perpetual conflict. So. And then things are happening now that they're in the slow, blocked, fitful way of Washington that I think are also hopeful, things that I think will bring about greater equality, like the infrastructure bill, which is bipartisan and which seems geared toward jobs that are, um, are, are, are going to employ people who don't have college degrees. Things like that are little tiny glimmers of hope that I'm holding on to so that we don't fall back into the despair of 2020. Just about a, a minute left. Um, the book's just out, but out long enough to have had some reaction. What uh, what uh, strikes you in the reaction to your book? I have I've been really pleased by it. It's being read seriously and and respectfully. I mean, there are people who disagree with parts of it pretty deeply. Some people on the left, some people on the right. Um, but I think it did hit a nerve. It it has touched things that people are thinking about that maybe they hadn't articulated, like the four narratives, um, like the threat to self-government, uh, like the role of equality in American life, and that um, seemed to have found you know, the, the pulse of, of the way Americans who don't want us to go over the cliff are feeling right now. And if it gives people a little hope, which I've been told by a number of readers it did, then I did my job right. Yeah, that, that is good. We need hope. We certainly do. Uh, well, it's a fascinating book. Um, it's called Last Best Hope. The writer is uh, award-winning author and staff writer at The Atlantic, George Packer. George Packer, thank you so much for the hour. I, I enjoyed it. Thanks for having me, Tom. Thank you. Thank you so much. Uh, coming up tomorrow, we are going to do another nonprofit uh, spotlight. Amy Anderson from uh, Sunshine Terrace will be with us, and uh, we will... 
spotlight your favorite nonprofit or individual doing good in your community. So uh, here's the email to get the information to us, and uh, we'll get that on the air tomorrow. Uh, upraccess at gmail.com, upraccess at gmail.com, and uh, we'll be doing that tomorrow. Thanks for listening today to Access Utah. I'm Jay Allison, producer of the Moth Radio Hour, and I hope you'll join us for our show here on Utah Public Radio with true personal stories told live without notes to standing room crowds around the world. Moth shows are renowned for the range of human experience they reveal. That's the Moth Radio Hour, Saturday evening at 6, right here on Utah Public Radio. The Moth is true stories told live, and this October you can experience it in person with all of us here at UPR. Join us at the Ellen Eccles Theater in Logan on October 21st for the Moth main stage. Just like the Moth Radio Hour, this live show will revolve around a theme, with storytellers exploring it often in unexpected ways. Since each story is true and every voice authentic, the show dances between documentary and theater. Tickets are available now. Find a link at upr.org, and we hope we'll see you there. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences, KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan, also heard at upr.org. I'm Kathy Lynn Jones, and I listen to Utah Public Radio from Mesquite, Nevada, online at upr.org.